Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the roadmap to reopening has been revealed by the City of Hamilton. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger talks to us about that. Reports show Canada's economy has been hit hard by COVID-19. However, with a gradual reopening taking place, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And many say it's time to start reopening the economy even faster. But the fear of a second wave is still looming. We'll get some details about that as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It's time for uh, the discussion about reopening in many communities right across North America as uh, we continue to deal with COVID-19. Uh, earlier, we uh, we talked with Paul Johnson, of course, from the Emergency uh, Measures uh, Task Force that the mayor has set up. And, uh, and this is how Paul Johnson outlined what should be going forward. Even as we move through the second and third sort of phases of, of uh, reopening provincially and how that rolls out uh, locally, we need to continue these basics all the way through that. I, I think everybody felt, hey, we're into stage one. As we head into stage two, maybe physical distancing ends. It doesn't. The virus is in our community. Physical distancing will remain. It needs to be a part of our life for quite some time until we have an immunity strategy. Well, there's the codicil, I guess, to what's going on. Uh, there is a document that the city has released. Now, they've talked about this, especially in the last couple of town hall meetings they had about this. But now we, we've got some ideas as to exactly how this is going to roll out. Uh, it's called Hamilton Reopens. Uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Mr. Mayor, good morning. How are you doing today? Um, very well, Bill. Thank you. Good morning. Good. Good, good to have you with us today. Let's let's talk a little bit about this. As I mentioned, over your last couple of uh, town hall meetings on those Wednesday evenings uh, from City Hall, the virtual meetings, uh, you and, and Paul Johnson and Dr. Richardson talked about your plan uh, going forward on here. And, and we should probably reiterate, as you've told us many times, Mr. Mayor, that an awful lot of what the city is going to be doing in the next few weeks is really predicated on what the province is going to allow us to do, isn't it? Exactly. And so uh, when, you know, Paul talks about the plan uh, it's great that we have a plan and it's uh, well defined and refined in terms of what happens when we can open up and so uh, and it's it's predominantly focused on city facilities the city rec centers the, uh, the service center of city hall how do we bring people back to work what kind of uh, what kind of protective equipment is going to be required what kind of cleaning regime how many people can come back to work given the social distancing that'll or physical distancing that'll have to be uh, maintained. So, you know, a good number of people likely will not be working out of the same office space that they've occupied, may very well be working from home uh, in the in the forecoming future. And as, as Paul indicated, uh, the sad reality is it's, it's going to be, when it happens, if and when it happens, it's going to be a new normal that uh, will continue to maintain uh, that physical distancing, hand washing, all the regimes that we've got in place, including, you know, masking uh, where appropriate when physical distancing isn't, uh, isn't capable to do. Uh, all of those things are going to be with us. Uh, you know, and I, I'm, I hate to put a timeline on it, but, uh, you know, the, 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 the realistic timelines that you hear from Dr. Fauci or, or our medical offices of health at, uh, at the federal and provincial level is that vaccines, uh, if it's going to be available, is, is, is probably a year away. So prepare ourselves for a different kind of environment uh, that we're going to live in, uh, you know, for the next good while, especially, uh, you know, get heading into the summertime now when everyone wants to uh, enjoy all of those great things that happen in the summertime, the concerts, the events, the uh, going heading into the fall or, or the Peach Festival, heading into the fall of the agricultural fairs, uh, you know, the the city pools, uh, you know, and all the facilities that are out there may not may not be available to us uh, this year, and that is going to be a dramatic change from what we're accustomed to uh, in in previous years. In fact, uh, I can't think of a time when we weren't able to do that. I think you have to go all the way back to either the war years or, or uh, the depression, and many of us weren't around then. So, our new uh, our new reality is going to be quite different for quite some time. Let's, I want to talk about the physical aspects of this, if we could. I mean, the, the buildings themselves. Uh, yep. You you spent a lot of time in City Hall over the years, Mr. Mayor, in various capacities as a, as a ward councillor and, of course, as mayor. Uh, so, And you're well acquainted with that building, and, and we know that there's a lot of people that work in that building. And, uh, and like many other office buildings, of course, there are offices, but there's also the workstations and a lot of people crammed in. That's mm-hmm. that's not going to happen anymore. Have you had that discussion about what the actual office space is going to look like, and and how many people you will actually be able to accommodate once you say, okay, open the doors, let's see who can, who's going to come back. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly the exercise that uh, this whole reopening plan, uh, you know, speaks to. Uh, not only, uh, you know, how many people can come back, given the physical distancing that's going to have to apply, but uh, under under what basis. So, uh, you know, as they come to work each day, there's going to have to be a self-screening or a screening process, not, not physical screening, but, uh, you know, a number of questions asked each day. You know, are are you feeling well? Are you, do you have any signs of, uh, you know, a dry cough? All, all the symptoms that... Uh, that are COVID related, uh, you know, has to be walked through. And, uh, you know, if, if it's a check mark positive, uh, or, or I guess negative for all of those, then, uh, off, of, off you go to work. Anyone that's feeling, you know, and, and it used to be that, uh, you know, if you had a cold, you, you popped a couple of Advils and, you know, if you felt pretty good, you probably, you know, went to work and, uh, and marched on. Uh, that's not going to be the case anymore. So anyone that's sick or ill of any, any sort, you're going to be staying home or working from home. And so I, I would expect, so there's about 500 people that are normally in the City Hall building uh, working, uh, you know, on a day-to-day basis. I, I'm, I'm going to say it's probably going to be 250 uh, that are going to be doing that uh, from City Hall. And the, uh, the balance of them are going to be uh, finding a, a way to uh, work for one, which is already happening. In fact, mm-hmm. right now, I would say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the office every day with uh, rotating staff, physically distanced. Uh, there's probably about 50 people in the building in its entirety right now. And so all of the other people are working from home. I mean, they're working from home. They're not sitting idle. They're not sitting uh, doing nothing. They're doing their work. They've, they've got their equipment in their home office, and they're interacting with uh, the staff as they normally would, virtually, online, and uh, everything is functioning as it should be. How's that workplace going to look? Uh, you've, you've talked, obviously, about the number of people that will be allowed in there, and you're going to have to make some allowances in different working spaces. Uh, will there be a, 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 a request, or will there be a policy here about personal protective equipment? Well, there, to the degree that, uh, you know, masking may not be the order of the day unless people can't physically separate. And I think we're already finding now that, uh, that masking is more a, a protection for for you, protecting you not sharing uh, things to, with someone else when physical distancing isn't uh, possible. And so, uh, you know, as long as people physically distance, uh, as long as we have good cleaning regimes in the building, and that's another thing that's going to be uh, uh, truly heightened, as long as there are uh, protective shields, when so when the public comes into the tax, tax uh, desk to pay their tax bill, that there's protective shields there, there's uh, hand sanitizers there, I mean, there's going to people need to be cleaning their own workspaces on a regular basis. That's something that's going to be part of the regime, which you know clearly doesn't happen now. We have cleaning staff that come in, do the cleaning overnight, and then everybody comes back to work in the morning. Well, that's going to change. Uh, cleaning staff will still be there. They'll be cleaning you know, all the hand surfaces, all the hand railings, all the doorknobs on you know on a daily basis, not once but multiple times as people come in and out of the building. And uh, the protective shields, like they're doing in the grocery stores, at the, at the service counters, uh, will need to be in place to ensure that there's a, uh, a not an ability for people to uh, share, uh, you know, the, uh, the air, the breath, uh, and the droplets that come out of, uh, you know, the projecting um, out of your mouth that uh, can, can land on people. So those protective shields are going to be there like they are in, uh, in the grocery stores and in the pharmacies and uh, in now retail stores that, uh, that are happening. Masking, you know, if you're if you're ill, you shouldn't be at work. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think the masking issue is going to be a bit of a, a dance. I think, you know, in, uh, citywide, I think uh, we may very well end up uh, requiring masking on the transit system because there's a there's a place where you, you, you it's going to be very difficult for us to maintain a transit system at, with physical separation uh, of six feet. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so masking in those circumstances is probably going to be critically important. It may very well end up being mandatory. But beyond that, I think masking is, uh, is going to be important. I think it's, uh, no one's criticizing anyone for wearing one. That's certainly not an inappropriate thing to do. It is most useful when you're unable to uh, you know, physically separate from one another. So when, when I think about people coming to work, uh, they, they tend to use an elevator. Uh, that elevator needs to be cleaned and the buttons need to be cleaned, uh, you know, probably every hour on the hour. And uh, when people go into an elevator, that's probably the, where, the, the location where they're going to have to wear a mask because, you you know, how do you how do you stand six feet away from somebody unless you're the only person in the elevator? Mm-hmm. So all of these things have to be thought through, have been thought through, and uh, and will be put into practice uh, when, the, uh, when, when the order says we can go and when our medical officer of health says, 
uh, we think the circumstances in Hamilton are appropriate for us to move forward. The, the mandatory uh, personal equipment is, is interesting, uh, and, and you're right. Mm-hmm. I think many of the jurisdictions that we've seen, especially south of the border, uh, that have gone through this phase already are making it mandatory. You want to get on the bus, you have to have a face mask, or you don't get on the bus. That's all there is to it. Yeah. But some of them have gone to the next step, as you know, Mr. Mayor. In, in New York, uh, Governor Cuomo uh, is now giving store owners and retail uh, outlets the, uh, the, the basically the leeway to say, look, it, uh, you can demand that they wear a mask before they re- you even allow them in there. And if they refuse to wear a mask, they don't shop or they don't buy or they don't you know eat in that restaurant, whatever the case might be. Now, is, mm-hmm. is that if, if we were to go down that road, is that going to be a municipal decision or would that be done by the province? Uh, I think that would be done by the province. Uh, you know, I think we, uh, we, we certainly license, uh, you know, you know, businesses but i think the overall requirement for everybody to, ha- to be mandated to wear masks in retail locations i think lies with the the store owners and we're already seeing that happening so right now if you go to costco i think it's a requirement to have a face mask not a surgical mask but a face mm. face mask which uh, dr elizabeth uh, identifies as as two layers of material that uh, be, can be an appropriate shield uh, you know i think uh, from location to location there are variances in what people require and, and people will make their own choices in terms of where they go based on how comfortable they feel. And so, you know, we're already seeing in, in locations in Georgia and other states in the United States where they're far more advanced in terms of opening things up, that, that people are not running to these locations because many people are not feeling comfortable enough that the, the proper protections are in place, especially for those that are, that are more prone to this COVID disease, people, older people with immune issues or underlying health issues are, are second guessing whether they, they go there or not. And, and that has certainly promoted the whole notion of online shopping in a, in a, in a greater way as well. I know many people today that are uh, not going to the grocery store at all. They're ordering online and they're having it delivered. Uh, they're, they're paying the extra, for those that can afford to do that, they're paying the extra $15 and they don't have to go to the store at all. And so, uh, you know, all, all those, all those choices I think are going to be, uh, choices for the store owners, store operators, and choices for individual customers to make. And if they, if uh, people are comfortable in a location where everyone's wearing a mask and they're good with that too, then obviously that store will be a beacon for that, and others may be different. When these businesses open, uh, we can use restaurants, we can use retail outlets, whatever the case might be. Uh, as you mentioned, there are going to be some some rules and regulations that the province has already put in place. Uh, Premier Ford's already talked about that. Uh, social distancing is going to be one of those. Uh, the capacity is certainly going to be one of those, uh, as, and especially in restaurants and situations like that. Uh, I hate to throw another cost at you, Mr. Mayor, because I know you guys had a pretty thorough discussion the other day about how much this is costing the city. But uh, somebody has to regulate that stuff, and somebody has to do those inspections. I am assuming that's going to fall to the city, is it? Yeah, I mean, we already do restaurant inspections for uh, for, for health and safety, and so uh, I think you're going to have to do headcounts and things like that now, too, though. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, I think uh, you know, if people set up their restaurants properly, I don't think that it's going to be too difficult to do. I mean, uh, you know, like most, uh, you know, and most everything else. Inspectors out there are out there to to ensure that people are uh, doing the right thing. Uh, they, they they randomly ins- inspect these locations for for all the right reasons. Because if uh, if you know they're coming, you're obviously going to do something to set it up to to appeal to the inspector. And so, but you know, and we find that you know responsible restaurateurs uh, understand the dilemma here. Understand that their business is going to be uh, is going to suffer if they don't physically separate. If their people aren't comfortable going to the restaurant and they know that uh, physical separation is important to stop the spread of this virus, that they could very well be going to a restaurant and contaminating themselves, and they're not going to go. Uh, so there's a number of measures in place that I think are, will, will be required to ensure that people feel comfortable enough to go to their favorite restaurant and, and know that when they go there, they're going to be uh, properly protected and that the employees that are there are going to protect them and, and vice versa, the, uh, the employees as well. And so, uh, People that are doing the right thing are going to be favored restaurants, and people that are doing the wrong thing are not. Uh, having said that, we are going to have an inspection regime, as we have had with physical separations and with businesses that open too soon against the orders from the province. Tickets, is, tickets have been leveled, and uh, bylaw and our, our health and safety inspectors will be out there uh, doing their work to ensure that people are doing the right thing.
We've talked about staged openings, and, and, and again, as we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, a lot of that's going to be predicated on, on how the province d- decides these are going to roll out. But whether it's going to be phase one, phase two, or phase three, whatever the case might be in, in our particular situation, have you pretty much written off the, uh, the recreational facilities for this year? Uh, the, you know, the, 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 the soccer pitches, the baseball diamonds, the rec centers, things of that nature. Just As long as, as you just said at the beginning of this, as long as the virus is there and physical distancing is in play, I, I, I'm not so sure there's any any explanation or any way that we can actually make use of those facilities in an effective way. Yeah, I, I, I hate to make it an absolute no, but I think it's it's a reasonable expectation that the likelihood of those facilities being available this year is uh, is pretty small. Uh, you know, right now we're at uh, no no gatherings of five five or more, and you know, invariably it's got to be predominantly family. Uh, you know, I, I don't see that that changing dramatically. Maybe maybe it becomes 10 or 15 or 20. And even at that, uh, you know, it's going to be impossible to, 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 to host a soccer game, uh, you know, because there's many, many more people that come to a soccer game. And it just it just doesn't fit the model. And so I would say that, uh, you know, a lot of those great, you know, sports activities, uh, sports fields activities, uh, recreation centers, uh, swim lessons, uh, you know, all the things that uh, we we expect and like to do over the summertime and throughout the year. Uh, this this season, uh, I, I'm, it's very, very unlikely that uh, they're going to be available to us. I would say the same about, uh, you know, we, as we talked earlier, Peace Festival has canceled yeah. its, uh, its event. Uh, I, I would think it's very, very unlikely that any of the agricultural fairs that, uh, you know, are, are destined for, you know, September, October, uh, the likelihood of them going, they need they need to be able to plan up and, and, and get their organization set in place well in advance. And right now, the likelihood of this happening, you know, under current stack, current circumstances is zero. Uh, I cannot foresee that uh, we're going to be allowing, you know, hundreds of thousands of people to tromp through, uh, you know, a, a super crawl or a, uh, a agricultural fair at Rockton. Uh, it just doesn't uh, doesn't jive with the circumstances we're in now. So I think the likelihood of them happening is very small. We are having our, our, our public health meet with all the major event organizers to kind of lay out for them the kind of prognosis for, for the city and where we're going with this virus so that they can make a, an informed decision uh, uh, on their own as to whether or not they think these events uh, is something that they're going to put a lot of time and effort into planning for this year. Well, we'll take it one week at a time. Mr. Mayor, thanks as always for the time. Uh, Stay well. We'll talk again next week. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks, Bill. You too. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Canada is bound for what they call mediocre growth in 2020, probably to the surprise of nobody. We all know that COVID-19 is going to have an impact on the economy. Just how significant was it going to be? Well, we've got the stats from the uh, first quarter. Uh, it's not a really pretty picture. Joining us to talk about this is Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University in Ottawa. Uh, good morning, Ian. How are you feeling today? I'm doing just fine, uh, Bill. <laughs> good, good. Good to have you with us today. Uh, Stats Canada has done some number crunching here, Ian, as you've seen. Uh, we knew things were going to be bad. Are they as bad as we had anticipated? Uh, no, I think, I mean, they're bad. Let, let's, let's not sugarcoat this at all. Uh, but did we expect it to be really bad? Yes. I mean, I think we, there was an awful lot of, um, there were a lot of signals, um, you know, the preliminary reports of how many people were applying for the CERB and the unemployment insurance and so forth. So we knew the numbers were dire and grim. And, uh, so it's, it's showing that. Um, I think the, the really interesting question now, is how much is this becoming uh, structural, which is the big fancy word for permanent, versus how much of this is cyclical. And those are two words I use all the time in my class because they're really important. They're not buzzwords. Mm -hmm. You know, cyclical means, you know, the economy goes up, the economy goes down, the Canadian dollar goes up, it goes down. How much of uh, the growth will come back? In other words, how much of this growth we lost is a cyclical loss? And how much is structural? As you can guess from my words, Structural loss is much worse because that kind of loss is is growth that's not coming back. And what drives structural loss in this instance? Well, thousands and thousands of businesses closing their doors permanently, meaning they liquidate their business or they file for bankruptcy under the Federal Bankruptcy Act. That's going to cause a structural change in our economy, and that's what really worries me. 
We can't even really quantify that number, though, can we? Because so many businesses are shut down. Like we we, we don't even know how many are they ever going to open their doors again. Exactly. We don't yet know. We're in the middle of the middle of the middle of it. You know, Winston Churchill talked about being at the end of the beginning or something over. Smack dab right in the middle. And and I mean, I don't even think that all the entrepreneurs know. You know, some of them are hanging on by their fingertips, and it really depends on how quickly they're allowed to reopen and how quickly the customers come back and how much they can, how many customers they can put in the in the restaurant, for example. So all of these are literally not yet known, and 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 some entrepreneurs will be saying, thinking that they're going to stay alive, and then the bank is going to call them in and whisper in their ear. I'm a former banker from many years ago, and say, you know what, we're closing you down. Uh, because we own the uh, security, we have the security on your on your bank loan, and we are calling it in and closing you down. So th- a lot of that's going to happen, and 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 they there there's a lot of jobs there, and those jobs pay taxes, maybe not a lot, but they pay taxes, and that all flows into the federal government. So you know it's not so much that this quarter, I mean, which was disastrous, we all knew that. Mm-hmm. The question is, what's going to happen in the quarter and the quarter after the quarter? In other words, the next two quarters, three quarters, four quarters, how much? is going to come back and i do not believe anything close to a hundred percent is going to come back and then the question is how much fifty percent seventy percent don't know and it's it but it's going to be much lower which suggests we're going to have much bigger deficits than we've had historically in a very long time i'm glad you referenced the fact that you've been in the financial world for a long long time even before you were teaching over at carlton uh somebody made a a point to me the other day when we were talking about reopenings and, and just who may or may not be doing this, and uh, there seemed to be almost a, a line of, of thinking, Ian, that, look, at, uh, if you're a small business, uh, if you don't own your building, you're screwed uh, because yeah. you're just going to be so far behind the eight ball when this finally opens. That sounds pretty stark. Is, is that a reality that a lot of them are facing? Yes, and, and just let me explain why for your listeners um, who may not realize this. The, the, and I'm not a lawyer, but I mean, I certainly dealt with this all the time. So you learn about law, even if you're sure. not a lawyer, if you're in banking, because you have to. You have no choice. Um, the tenants, everyone as a tenant who rents, or an individual listening who rents, knows that the landlord and tenant law in, in Ontario is very tough, meaning it's very protective of the tenant, the residential individual personal tenant. Those protections that are very significant and real to protect individuals do not mostly exist in commercial tenancies and in commercial law. That is to say, the commercial landlord has much more power than a residential landlord, and they can basically throw you out and on very short notice and, and lock the doors and seize your, your stuff inside. And, um, and so as a consequence, they're, uh, they're far less lenient commercial landlords, not because they're horrible. Remember, they, they've probably got a mortgage on the ba- on a building that they own that's owed to investors somewhere or a bank, and they've got to make the mortgage payments. And uh, so as a consequence, the, they don't have as much leeway. And secondly, the, the landlord is not going to say, oh, gee whiz, gosh darn, I understand there's a big crisis here, so how about if we just waive three months of payments? You know, they're not in the charity business. That's not what they do. And um, and so I think that small businesses, and I've certainly lent millions of dollars over many years in banking to small businesses, uh, I know, contrary, and I'm not taking cheap shots when I say this, but contrary to the NDP and the Greens who talk all the time about all these rich business, uh, business people and they've even small businesses with all kinds of money stashed away, that's not true. It is not true. My experience with small business was most of them are hanging on. They project maybe that they're big and, and successful and affluent. Maybe the owner of a small business is driving a Beamer, for God's sake. My experience was that everything they own and that they're driving around and showing off with is mortgaged up to the eyeballs in debt. Mm-hmm. And small businesses are heavily indebted, and they have very few spare resources. And so that means they don't have a lot of resiliency. In plain English, they can go two or three months in a crisis, and that's it. Then they hit the wall. And the bank will say, so sorry, you don't have any more that you can pledge, and we're not going to carry you anymore. So 
My point, that's why small businesses have such a high failure rate. And that's been studied, known in every country that has small business. They have very high failure rates. And, and so uh, that's why th- it's not just the landlord situation where they don't have much leeway, but it's also they don't have a lot of resources in most small businesses. Sure, there's some that have been in business for 35 years and they've been very conservative and very prudent. There's always exceptions to any generalization. But many small businesses are up to their keisters in debt, and that's one of the reasons why they fail. You know, you can't you can't go bankrupt if you don't owe anybody any money. Nobody can take your house if you don't owe any money on your house. It's one of those fundamental things about indebtedness. Uh, and I know the government's tried to address this with some of the programs they've announced about rent subsidies and things of this nature, but yeah. uh, the, the businesses I've talked to, Ian, over the last little while, I mean, credit to the government for trying to do something, but yes. uh, I'm not hearing any rave reviews from anybody. Uh, that's exactly um, my uh, view. Um, I, I thought that, and I still believe this, uh, Bill, and this isn't hindsight 2020. I was saying this the day they rolled out the CERB. I thought that they should have said from the very beginning, there's far fewer businesses in Canada than there are people working. And that's a fact. There's about a million and a half corporations, but there's 19 or 20 million working Canadians per StatsCan. So what they should have done is said, look, we're going to ensure that we inject money into the businesses, small, medium, and large, to ensure that they keep everybody on the payroll. Then there's no need for a CERB. There's no need to deal with landlords. There's no need to deal with all these you know, alphabet soup programs because you nip it in the bud at the very, very beginning where you step in, you, the government of Canada, step in to backstop every business. And then that would have, I think, uh, stopped uh, the knock-on effect, the domino effect of bankrupt company bankruptcies, and it would have stopped the knock-on effect of layoffs, of mass layoffs. And if people say, well, that's really expensive, well, what exactly do we think the CERB is? The CERB is running into the 40, 50, 60 billion dollar range. So we should have done it. First off, there's far fewer businesses to do it with. And secondly, for those who say, well, we didn't have time to set up a bureaucracy. Bill, this is nonsense. Every employer in Canada, large, medium, and small, must submit on the 16th of each month, forever and ever and ever, the withholding taxes of every employee that's on the payroll. And they have to submit it to this agency called CRA. The CRA has a better database, Canada Revenue Agency, than any institution in Canada, including the spy guys. They know every business. They know where it's located. They have the tax returns from that business because they have to pay taxes and file tax returns. And that company or employer, Carlton University, must list every person on the payroll on the 16th of each month with their social insurance number. So they know in CRA exactly who's working, who's not working, how much they're making, because of the withholding taxes. And in other words, they have this, and and of course they know the bank accounts of every employer because they're remitting their taxes that are due, the withholding taxes, to CRA. So you've got this enormous machine in Canada called the CRA that can pump out money really, really quickly. And you don't have to build the database. It's already there in the tax files. Well, and, and that's one of the things that I was always concerned about, too, that I don't think they used the tools as effectively, the, what the tools that were at their disposal. Yeah. Uh, I guess just to try to put a positive spin, if we do any of this, uh, as I'm looking at some of these numbers from Stats Canada, as bleak as this picture looks, uh, they seem to think that, uh, that you know, as you talked about at the beginning here, that this may simply be a short-term thing. And in 2021, if we do have some of these or most of these businesses open, uh, we may not get back on our feet, but we'll at least we you know, get back off our backs anyway. Well, we're, I don't want to leave the idea that there's this, that says we're doomed and there's no turnaround here. I'm not making that argument. People are trickling back to work. Businesses are opening. I can now get into Home Depot. I did it yesterday without, you know, the, the, the whole uh, lineup out front. Um, and so stores are reopening. That's really good uh, because those people are going back to work, and then they'll be paying taxes and making money and so forth. My point is, is the businesses that uh, have closed permanently, as I've said, and then there's that segment or sector, let's call it the sectors of the economy, that cannot reopen because they're high risk. In other words, large numbers of people, close together, extended period of time. I just described restaurants and bars and airplanes and the whole entertainment and hospitality industry, like going to the Stratford Festival. All of these uh, theater organizations and uh, plays and music festivals, the Toronto Exhibition, 
the Tulip Festival, the Blues Fest here in Ottawa, the Calgary Stampede, gone. They're not coming back this year. And, and so that's a, a reduction from our GDP. And how much in totality are all of these businesses called airlines and restaurants and bars and hotels and car rental agencies? I don't know. But it's certainly a lot more than 1% or 2 or 3% of GDP. And that's not coming back this year. So we're still going to look at the whole year of 2020 to be uh, very much negative GDP, like we have shrunk, in other words. We have declined. And as you said just a couple of minutes ago, even this recovery, such as it is, is really going to be dependent on how many people actually open the doors and how yeah. many people go through them. Listen, exactly. i got to take you down a, a side road here for just a second because it's another story I wanted to, to get your opinion on, uh, and that's money. Uh, you know, you've heard that old phrase, hey, your money's no good here, Ian. Uh, yeah. In a lot of stores these days, your money's no good. I, I, you just mentioned that you were at Home Depot. Now, I haven't been out a whole lot. I, you know, we're, we're doing the show from home here and et cetera. Yeah. Uh, March 16th, the day after payday, uh, I went to the bank and I took about 60 bucks out, you know, just so I had money in my pocket. Well, of course, they shut everything down the next day. Yeah. It's still in my pocket, Ian. Uh, yeah. I've, I have bond, been to a few stores and they say, we don't want cash. We will not take you cash. Yeah. Uh, I know we were heading towards a cashless society anyway, but this pandemic has really put us on the fast track, hasn't it? Um, I'm glad you asked that question. Just by sheer happenstance, I'm not making this up, Bill. I published two monographs in the last four years on the payment system of Canada. And the stats were crystal clear that cash was going down, 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 down. And, uh, and I, I argued that, you know, it, it has all kinds of interesting knock-on effects, aside from the fact some people get annoyed by that. You know, if you have nothing to hide, I've argued there's no problem with an electronic payment system, whether you're paying by debit card or credit card or online payments, doesn't matter. But who likes cash? I mean, aside from just small people want to go in and pay cash because they feel comfortable. People doing really bad things. Uh, how about people, um, drug dealers? How about terrorists? They don't take credit cards or debit cards. Uh, how about uh, people in the sex trade? In other words, people in the underground economy uh, want cash. And when you go to an all or almost all electronic system, it is devastating on the underground economy. It is just devastating because it's a lot harder to hide with electronic. I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying it's much more difficult. And the final point, very quickly, Bill, because I know you've got some small business people listening. Oh, yeah. I've had arguments with small businesses up and down for years. I showed in my study using American data the single most expensive medium of payment is cash. They keep really? telling you it's credit cards with a 2 3%. I said, that's a bargain, 2 or 3%. Cash, the costs of taking cash for a small business are hidden. You First off, you have to have a special night deposit, and you have to pay the bank extra for the cash. You yeah. have to have two people to count the cash at all times, otherwise you'll get stolen blind. You've got to protect against somebody coming in and robbing and maybe hurting one of your employees to get at the cash. People don't steal credit card chips and debit chips. They want cash. And so I figured, and based on Federal Reserve data, the co true cost of cash is around 8%. But most small businesses... No offense, I like small businessmen very, and women very much, but they're naive. They don't understand the accounting costs. Credit cards and debit cards are dirt cheap. Cash is really expensive, really, really expensive. So if they're really, really strategic, they would say, I'm not taking cash. Use the, blame it on the coronavirus, and you, your costs will actually go down over time, especially people fingering the till, because it's very difficult to finger a credit card debit. You can't cash it in. It's not negotiable. Cash is negotiable because it's a bearer instrument. Whoever found the $20 bill and is in their pocket, they own it. That's called a bearer instrument. You, you can't do that with credit card chits where a customer came in and paid the transaction with a credit card. It's much more difficult. You can still have fraud, but it's a lot harder when everything's electronic. Well, I've got more than a few friends that are in some of the fast food businesses, franchise owners for that, and uh, they they tell them, I'm sure you've heard the same stories, Ian, that you know, they, we've got to be there 25 hours of the day to keep an eye on the till. I uh, was taught that by my first restaurant customer when I was in the bank uh, 40 years ago. I said to him, why are you here 18 hours a day? I said, I've never seen you ever take time off. He says, if I don't, they'll steal me blind. Yep. And but, he uh, was, had been an entrepreneur for 40 years. He really knew what he was doing. Well, I guess I'm not getting rid of this 60 bucks in my pocket anytime soon. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Ian, have a great weekend. Stay healthy. We'll talk again soon. Appreciate my, this. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you.
Take care. Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. It's amazing. I, I, I was really kind of surprised. I, I, you know, in the early days, you know, I, I had to go to the Sobe store and, okay, okay, they're not taking cash. I can understand that. But, you know, I thought, okay, in, in passage of time, it, they'll ease that up and, yeah, okay, we'll take it. And, I, and I'm told now that some places do. Yeah, they'll take your cash, uh, but they would still prefer that you use debit or credit or whatever the situation might be. And it's, uh, and there's a legitimate reason because they're afraid of the transmission of the virus on the money. Now, I, I to this point, have never heard of anybody who was actually infected with coronavirus. Uh, because they had cash on their hands, but let's face it, we're all being uh, just a little bit, you know, uh, if not paranoid, very, very cautious about what we're doing. And uh, it's going to be rather interesting as we start to move forward and get the economy back on track. Uh, the opinion that people are going to have about having cash and using cash and going back and forth like that, because as we've seen with so many other things, uh, once circumstances, in this case a dire circumstance like a pandemic, gets us to do things a different way, Oftentimes, when the, the the danger is past, we just think, "Well, I'm kind of comfortable doing it that way now. Maybe I don't want to go back to the old ways." So that's interesting, and it was something that we'll track, I guess, uh, as we go forward. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of talk about COVID-19 uh, earlier in the program. The Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, of course, talked to us about uh, their rolling out plan about uh, trying to get back to normal. A lot of communities are doing that. The Premier's talking about that. The Prime Minister's talking about that. But we need to do this, and this is what they all say, we need to do this in conjunction with the best possible medical advice. And the concern that's being raised by a lot of people in the medical community is, well, when we start opening doors again and sending people back to work, uh, is there going to be a second wave? And there are some that are suggesting, oh, come on, this was never as bad as everybody thought. It's not going to happen. Well, uh, Dr. Sandy Buckman from the Canadian Medical Association has a different opinion. The second wave is inevitable. There's never been a uh, pandemic in recorded history that didn't have a second wave. And often that second wave is even worse than the first. Well, that's reassuring. <laughs> but I mean, well, we, we need to be realistic. And, and how do we predict what's going to happen? Well, there's strength in numbers. I mean, there are people that do the analysis on this. And we're about to talk with one of them right now as we find out exactly how this virus is acting and what may happen in the future with us. Uh, to discuss that, we're pleased to welcome to the program Dion Elman, who is an associate professor in the Department of Mechanical and Industrial Engineering, Faculty of Applied Science and uh, Engineering Director uh, at the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, thank you. Thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. It's my pleasure. I, there's a, I, I got a hundred questions, and I got us right up front. I, like everybody else, I'd love to get back to quote unquote normal. I'd like to go to a ball game. I'd like to do a lot of other things. But here's here's a question because I know you've done a great deal of analysis on pandemic research and tracking and things of this nature. Uh, we shut everything down here uh, on March 17th because we said this is just too dangerous. Uh, here we are on May the 29th. Uh, th th the virus is still here. Uh, we don't have a vaccine for it. Uh, are we rushing back into this just because we're getting, getting tired of, of doing what we're doing, or is it actually safer than it was on March 17th? Well, <clears throat> I will say, you know, we've been doing this for two months, and I miss the Blue Jays as much, if not more, than, uh, <laughs> than most people. Um, yeah, there's just not a lot of news in the off season for baseball. No. But, um, you know, we, the thing that we really have to be mindful of is that if we open up too too fast, too soon, then we're going to be in this, you know, semi-lockdown state for even longer. So it's really best for, for everybody if we just, you know, buckle down and uh, power through this, you know, longer, what should probably be a more stringent lockdown uh, right now and have it be over sooner. Because even though we have been doing this for two months, the lockdown has been, yeah, you know, kind of loose. And um, infections have still been spreading, even though it, it does seem that we are very conclusively on, on the other side of the peak. We're still looking um, in the province at, uh, you know, high 300s to low 400s of new cases every day. And they're not all um, able to be fully contact traced. So there are a lot of questions about how these transmissions are really happening. And until we really, really know what's going on and we can really get a handle on who's becoming infected and when and get them isolated, uh, we all need to be exceptionally cautious about what we do and uh, what gets opened back up in our economy. 
And that's what I'm, I, I was getting at. I mean, I'm not trying to be Donnie Downer here, but I mean, if uh, you know, we're talking about opening up and let's get back to this, and we want to have you know people in the parks again. Uh, yesterday, when they did their daily briefing at Queens Park, there a hundred more a hundred more cases than there were the day before of the virus. Now that doesn't necessarily mean a hundred people are going to be hospitalized, but it tells me that the virus is you know they keep talking about flattening the curve. It's still there and it's still growing, not as quickly as it did two months ago, but it is still growing, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is still growing. Um, you know, we have just sort of kind of flattened and plateaued out, which is actually, in my mind, a little bit disappointing because when we came down uh, off of the peak that we saw, um, you know, maybe maybe about a month ago, uh, we were actually really coming, you know, in like a nice decline. But all of a sudden, things just sort of flattened out, leveled out. Um, and, uh, you know, I think in part it's because people are feeling a bit overconfident about the situation. They're not being as cautious as they were before. They're gathering en masse in uh, popular parks. Like, uh, I'm sure everybody's seen the pictures of uh, Trinity Bellwoods Park uh, in oh, Toronto yeah. this past weekend. Uh, you know, if you tell people, okay, we're opening these parks, uh, you know, people just go hog wild and don't really think about the context of that park being open. It still means you need to be careful. You know, give people an inch and it'll take a mile. Um, and I think people just don't understand that, like, if everything is not really okay, then why is the economy opening back up? And so they're not moderating their their behavior in the way that that they should continue to still do. Notwithstanding the fact that, that people like yourself and, and medical officers of health uh, at the municipal and provincial and federal level have all said, this is only going to work, guys, if you do what we're asking you to do, i.e. physical distancing, uh, you know, personal protection equipment, things of this nature. But you're right. I mean, it seems every time we, you know, you give them an inch. Uh, we, we had a spike, what, uh, last weekend they announced that there was a huge spike. And uh, they asked the medical officer of health at the time, Dr. Williams, he said, he says, do the math. Fourteen days ago was Mother's Day. People obviously ignored what we said, went and did what they needed to do, and now there's a spike. So uh, it's, it's, it's a little concerning when you see that sort of thing to think, well, you know, how far are we going to go then when we start in, as municipalities to open up some of these facilities? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're exactly right. And uh, you know, we, we saw people, uh, you know, including uh, our premier, uh, not really following um, appropriate physical distancing measures when it comes to uh, seeing family around the time of Mother's Day. Um, Mayor John Tory in Toronto was at Trinity Bellwoods, not properly wearing his mask and talking with people. Uh, yeah, there's just a huge number of examples of, um, of uh, provincial and municipal leadership not setting a good example for people. And I think that that, you know, is also really resulting in the situation where everybody feels like, well, oh, I can do a little bit of this here. I can do a little bit of this, you know, unsafe thing there. You know, other people are doing it. It's fine. Um, and it would be fine if it was just one or two people, but nothing is ever just one or two people, right? It's always, you know, maybe 10 to 20% of the population. And that's a lot of people doing a lot of things that they shouldn't do. And it doesn't take that much uh, for disease spread to start taking off again. So with that in mind, maybe we need to redefine and maybe, you know, this is like, you know, let's go back to the basics just a second. Because uh, when this whole thing started, even back in January, when we started to think, hey, we got a problem here, there were still those and probably still are those that say, well, this is nothing worse than a bad flu. Uh, and, and we've, you know, there was over 100,000 deaths in the States and just way, way too many people have perished as a result of this. But even those that have survived, and we've talked to some of them on this program, Professor, uh, this thing is a beast. It's, it's not a flu bug. No, it's not. <clears throat> the accounts that I've read uh, from people that uh, have recovered are really very harrowing and make me really, really very nervous for um, people that are trying to push for this idea of, like, let's open back up, let's try to get to herd immunity, or it's not that bad, so it's safe to open up. Uh, because even if people do get it, it's not like they recover and they're 100% a couple of weeks later or even a couple of months later. Uh, we're actually <clears throat> just finding out from SARS 15 years ago that people who had SARS are now at extremely high elevated risk for all sorts of other lung uh, health complications that, uh, that can be very serious. And coronavirus, this coronavirus might be something very similar where the, the true long-term impact of having had COVID-19 won't be known for another 10, 15, 20 years. And we might look back and think, if only we knew then what we know now, uh, we would have been so much more um, protective of, of the people in our community to make sure that people really don't get this. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, misinformation out there, a lot of disinformation, and uh, a lot of people who just are tired of the lockdown and they just they, they want to hear um, that everything's going to be fine and that they can start going back to normal right now. And uh, I really don't know the best way to, to contact, uh, to combat that sort of situation.
But in the work that you do, the analysis that you do, and, and, and you, you could quote statistics for us right now, I'm, I'm sure, that's going to be as of today, as of May 29th. That might change May 30th. I mean, because we haven't defined this thing yet, have we? I mean, we still don't know. Uh, you know, is there, is there uh, the damage? We know that, okay, at first it was going to be a respiratory thing, but now we say, no, it can affect other organs too, maybe on a long-term basis. Uh, there's a story of blood clots. Uh, there's a story of young people getting strokes. Uh, we're, we're, you know, anybody that thinks we got this thing nailed and we, we you know, we've, we've defined it is, is not paying attention. Yeah, that's exactly right. Anybody who's paying attention can see that we are still grappling with understanding what is COVID-19, what is it doing to people, and how is it spreading. And, um, you know, there, a, a medical doctor could probably answer, you know, some of the questions around why uh, we have so little concrete knowledge about what actually happens when a person becomes infected with COVID-19. But the fact of the matter is that we don't really know what's happening to every single person when they become infected. We don't truly know all of the risk factors that put somebody um, in a situation where they might have a very severe or even deadly reaction to COVID-19. All that information is still being discovered and uncovered. Um, and a lot of that is just because there's a lot of variation between people and it's hard to predict. And a, and a lot of it is just through um, a lack of uh, cohesive, centralized uh, and consistent data collection, uh, you know, like this, <clears throat> this municipality reports, you know, this thing at this time and another municipality reports another thing. This country reports uh, deaths from COVID in this way and this other country, you know, doesn't include those types of deaths as counting for COVID. And it really muddies the waters and makes it very difficult to do any sort of um, evidence-based analysis to understand what's happening. How difficult does that make your job? Because you, you just had a very, very germane point here. Uh, there are some countries that only count COVID deaths that occur in the hospital. Uh, we don't know that yet. So, but, you know, they, so those, uh, there are an awful lot of, of statistics, I guess, that are falling through the cracks right now, which must make your job that much more difficult to try to ascertain exactly what's going on. Yeah, it, it really does. You know, for a lot of these numbers, you almost feel like you're just, you know, licking your finger and sticking it in the air to uh, to try to get uh, uh, an idea of, like, let's say, uh, what's the uh, what's the death rate for uh, a person in the age of 40s with um, asthma who uh, who contracts COVD because not everybody's reporting all that information and they're not all reporting it in the same way. So we have to, you know, make our best guesses in, in consultation with uh, with experts. And uh, we continually revise those numbers as new information comes to light. But uh, it, it does drive the point home that um, when, we, when we work with models, when we work with predictions, they always have to be taken with a grain of salt because there's a lot of uncertainty that goes into the inputs into these models. And so we need to look at the outputs as having that same level of, of uncertainty and know that just because the model predicts one thing, that's not actually what's going to happen. Um, but it'll probably be somewhere in that ballpark. Uh, but with COVID-19, that ballpark is, is, I'd say, bigger than usual because of all of these uncertainties. And that, you know, in my mind, says that we should be even more cautious uh, than usual because it's very possible that, uh, you know, these models are undershooting uh, what's going to happen because we're not entirely sure. Um, but it's always best practice when building these models to use the most, you know, conservative numbers, the numbers that are going to show more of a worst-case scenario. How difficult is it to construct a model like that when when there seem to be so many variances here? I mean, it's not as if you can say, oh, this is a, another coronavirus. Well, this is how these things act. Uh, the big, uh, these, these are almost like snowflakes, aren't they? Are we there, Professor? I hope we didn't lose her. Now, we seem to have a technical problem going on here. Uh, with uh, Professor Alleman. We'll try to get back with her in just a couple of seconds. Uh, interesting uh, research here that's going on about this, and it's one of the ongoing and, and very, very important aspects of this. Uh, that's so many multifaceted. You know, we talked to the medical experts, the medicals, medical officers of health and some of the other folks that are involved in trying to track this and, uh, and uh, as to where we're going. But, boy, the analysis is going to be so key in developing just how we're going to be able to handle this. Uh, have we got the professor back again? Good. Okay. Yes, Thank you so I'm much happy. for hanging on. I was just going to ask you uh, to, to repeat the question. Uh, how do you develop a model? How difficult is it for you to develop a model like this? Uh, because there don't seem to be a whole lot of, of, of consistencies here. Like, you know, the, I, I was using the example. I said, okay, COVID's a, it's a, it's a coronavirus, but we've, coronaviruses don't always act the same either. There's the, I guess there are some things that you can count on here, but so many variations here. It's got to be awfully difficult to try to pin this down. Uh, yes, it is. It is 
quite difficult. Um, so we do try to make a, a lot of generalities um, as we're building these models uh, so that, you know, if new information comes to light, it's just a matter of changing one them again. Uh, but definitely there, you know, everyone who's, who's doing COVID modeling uh, has had to build a lot of models completely from scratch just because the, the progression of the disease is, is not really lining up with anything else that, that we've seen or that we've attempted to model um, in modern times. So uh, it's, it's been a lot of work, um, you know, very fast, very frantic by um, thousands of people across the world uh, building these models. You, we, just before we uh, had you on here, we had, uh, of course, a doctor, Sandy Buckman from the Canadian Medical Association, who said that there was an inevitability, rather, that there was going to be a second wave. Do you concur with that? Yeah, I, uh, there's absolutely going to be a second wave as we open up. The question is just how big is that wave going to be? Is it going to be a little bit of a bump? Is it going to be a peak as big as we saw in the first wave? Is it going to be even bigger than what we saw in the first wave? And, you know, the answer to that really all comes down to how we all conduct ourselves, you know, how we all continue to be uh, very mindful about keeping physical distance, wearing PPEs when we can, if we have them, or, you know, making any sort of, you know, covering for, for our faces if we're going out and about and we're going to be coming into incidental contact with people, washing our hands, not touching our faces, all the usual stuff. You know, it's, it's not rocket science what we as individuals need to do to, to stem the, uh, the spread of disease, but we just have to stick to it to make sure that that second wave is as small as it can be. Well, and another story that a lot of people reference here was the Spanish flu around 1917-18, I guess it was, at, just near the end of the First World War, where the second wave actually was worse. It killed more people than the first wave, and, uh, and, and that's tragic. But my history that I've read on that suggested that, well, people just said, to heck with this, we're giving up, and they stopped all. They, of course, we didn't have the same knowledge that back then that we do now about how to do this, like you say, with PPEs and a number of other things like this. But I guess if there's a, a, a positive sign to this or a positive angle to this, it's that we, we can't control the virus, but we can control the spread by our actions. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The thing that we can all control is ourselves, and that's the biggest thing that makes a difference in the spread of disease. Uh, Professor, uh, as I was just mentioning, when we were trying to reestablish contact with you here. The stuff that you guys do here is so critical in this. I mean, you, you don't fight a virus like this. You don't analyze a virus like this uh, in singular fashion. There's the idea of, okay, finding a vaccine for this. There's finding treatment for this for people that have already got it. Uh, but that doesn't happen without the analysis that you and, and your teams are doing on a daily basis here to try to identify this and try to uh, track exactly where this is going. Uh, thank you for the great work that you're doing, and thank you so much for the time today. It was really a pleasure talking with you. All right, it was great to talk to you too. Have Take care day. now. Bye bye. We'll go to a ball game someday soon. I'm sure we will. I sure it's it's so. going to happen. Uh, Dr. Dion Alman, of course, uh, from the University of Toronto, and the key key research that's going on. Uh, and that's that's difficult. Listen, we're all frustrated. You know, with hey, enough is enough. I don't want to wear a mask. I don't want to this. I don't want to put gloves on. I I'm tired of the social distancing. But look, you got to be disciplined about this because the the downside if we don't do this, uh, it it could be pretty ugly. And I don't think any of us want to go there. So, you know, we I, all these trite little phrases that we used in the beginning, but they're, they're applicable. I mean, you know, the, the, if we if we continue with what we're doing right now, we can control the second wave. If we don't, it well, we don't want to even consider that as a possibility. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.